This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone that's listening at this very moment. You are listening to Literary Treks. We're the official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on Trek FM. And I'm so excited that you're joining us once again. And for all you newbies out there, welcome aboard. You're going to love this because if you like Star Trek and if you like reading, you're going to love this podcast. But you know what? You may not love me. I'm Bruce Gibson, but you will love Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. And Bruce, everyone loves you. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I feel so loved. (laughs) I'm such a lovable guy and I love everybody. Not really. But anyway, you know who else I love besides you, Dan? Who would that be? I love me some Amy Nelson. (laughs) And she's here with us. Hi, guys. I am so happy and feeling the love. Just so glad to be back on Literary Treks. You guys are the best. (laughs) Can you feel the love tonight? I thought we weren't doing singing on the show anymore. (laughs) Bruce can't help himself. Oh, that's true. I can't help myself. My neighbors complained the last time. They heard you through my headphones somehow. (laughs) I guess I get a little loud when they do that. Well, the thing is, you know, Amy, you're on Earl Grey here on the network and The Edge. You make the rounds now. You've been appearing on other shows here and even outside of Trek FM. Yeah, a little bit here and there. It's it's just so good to talk Star Trek. So you got to do it wherever you can. So there I am. Well, you're going to love this episode of Literary Treks because for two reasons. One, in our feature today, we have uh, author David Mack coming on to talk about his Titan novel, Star Trek Titan, which is an offshoot of TNG because Riker and Troy are in that on the USS Titan. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so exciting. I've heard good things about this book. A couple other people have said good things about it. So yeah, it's it's a good one. (laughs) It is. It's, it's Titan 
Fortune of War. So we'll talk to David Mack about that book, and we'll also ask him, we'll save it for the end, but we'll ask him about you know what he thinks of Discovery, because he also wrote Discovery Desperate Hours, and now that he's actually got a chance to actually watch the show that he wrote about, he might have some opinions on that. But there's a second reason why you should really love this episode of Literary Treks, Amy. And you know why? It's because we have a comic that is Star Trek The Next Generation, Mere Broken, issue number five. And you have joined us on every episode when we've talked about the Mere Broken comic series. And I think it's great that you've, you've come on. We've, we've had issues one through four. This is the fifth one. But prior to that, we had the free comic day issue, issue zero. And you've been here all the way through. And we really appreciate it. I that. have. This really has been so educational and so much fun because I had never read or purchased a comic before. And now I have all the issues. So I'm very excited to have this new opportunity to explore Star Trek in a different medium. Through this series, you've learned how to read a comic, which is really cool. And I love that you've been able to join us for every issue. So, yeah, awesome. Yeah, thanks for making it happen, guys. Oh, our pleasure. <laughs> yeah, and anytime I will read the series, I will think how this is the first comic series you ever read, which I think is pretty cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because it's a good one. It I is. Mean, I, it's really, yeah. really good. Great story, great visual and artwork. And it's, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, and this issue five picks up immediately where we left things in ish, issue four, where the Enterprise is being chased by these other starships. Um, and I don't even remember what starships, but I know you do. The and Horatio and the Stargazer. There you go. Of course, and the Stargazer, yes. And they're chasing the Enterprise because Picard and crew have taken over this new Enterprise and they fall into all these ships of Romulans and Klingons and Cardassians and they're in a mess and that's where things pick up here in issue number five and we see Picard actually talking to the Cardassians and trying to save their butts in this situation as Guinan is sleeping <laughs> <laughs> but Guinan doesn't sleep for long <laughs> no not very long <laughs> mm -hmm. now Guinan's a bit crazy in this alternate universe because this is in the mirror universe during the TNG time and she just wakes up and just starts storming through the Enterprise to get to the bridge to do something so do we have is, is she crazy in this because she acts like it she's crazy and she's super strong I mean because you mm -hmm. see people flying out of her way like she is a woman on a mission for sure yeah, she manages to throw a few ensigns a good few feet here. So, yeah, she's and and man, the that one panel where it captures the look on her face as she runs through the corridors. It's just this haunted look. And wow, yeah. I, I just the expressions are amazing here. Yeah, it gives you the chills. Well, and and we're saying that she must have tremendous strength. We don't really see that on the TV series, but could she have always had that? We just never seen her use it. Well, I mean, Q's afraid of her, right? So, <laughs> you know, 
I, I I don't know that we've seen physical strength from her, but I would say, you know, she's a very strong character somehow. So, yeah, it makes sense. I'm like, yeah, I go with it. Maybe she is really physically strong as well. But did she ever really say anything to Picard? It's like she's running through the corridors. I've got to talk to the captain. And then he sort of almost dismisses her. Well, I mean, I guess he listens to her and then he's like, all right, go away now. And I was like, well, did hmm. she even say anything of great importance? I I didn't think she did. Yeah. yeah. They took her into his ready room or and, and she's just, you know, Picard, what you're doing just it can't it's not a good thing it, it could be very dis- disastrous you know going up against the Cardassians. well it's like well yeah duh <laughs> yeah and was that you know waking up in a mad mess to go tell the captain that i, I don't know it's yeah, weird it does- so it's it's a question mark that i have yeah it doesn't seem to pay off like, right yeah i don't really understand what the what the vital importance of her saying that was. And I mean, maybe it's very subtle. Maybe she did change how things play out by influencing Picard somehow, but it just, yeah, it seems like it's like, oh, and okay, we're done with that now. Well, and if this is, I mean, because remember from previous issues, like when she first comes aboard and she's like in this cage thing and Barkley's like, who is this person? And Picard's like, she's very important. And so then it's sort of leading up to something. And then this is all we get. I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, she says, and I'm reading it straight from here. You need to be, she's talking to Picard. You need to be thinking two steps ahead, not exchanging schoolyard taunts with the full Cardassian back there. And he says, yes, yes, you're right. And she's like, you need to think about what this new ship can do for you and how you can best take advantage of the situation. Anything less than that from you right now could well get us all killed. And basically at this point, they're just like, okay, Guinan, well, you can go back to your room, take a nap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it does, I'm sure, influence his final tactics at the end of the, the story. Um, you know, utilize the ship to the, its fullest capabilities, that sort of thing. But it just, in the moment, it seems very anticlimactic, I guess. Um, I don't understand why she was tearing through the ship with such ferocity to say that. You know, it, it and I mean, this Guinan isn't our Guinan, but it seemed very un like <laughs> Well, yeah, and we're in the mirror universe, and maybe that's the point, is just to make her different mm-hmm. uh, in this I don't know. If we get to more issues, there may be more to this. We'll we'll see. So they do. You know, I thought in this issue, compared to the others, that this the our TNG characters felt even more like themselves. Like it didn't even feel like mere universe characters to me. It just felt like it was the regular TNG crew, just in a different situation. And I know that's kind of what they've been trying to go with. But they seemed a little rougher in the beginning, but now they seem to gel together as a crew. What did you did that work for you guys too? Did it feel that way? Yeah, that's that definitely played out in my head as well. I, I remember thinking and and I know we've said that about Picard specifically in the past, but this one more so than any other one. Just the way he's dealing with Riker and then even the other captains at the end, and, and it just all felt more like the Federation and Starfleet than 
the Terran Empire. And I'm sure people still have their agendas. And I mean, that's even directly kind of referenced at the end when talking about Barclay, about how this whole experience has changed him and his outlook. So, you know, I, I think maybe that's very um, intentional, maybe, because, you know, for example, the Terran rebels in Deep Space Nine, we f- feel they're just, like Rom says in that episode, they're not alternate. They're That O'Brien's as nice as our O'Brien. So, I don't know, maybe circumstances are changing and we're kind of working towards that, possibly. Well, and I think in the beginning issues, they were obviously at odds with each other. But now they're finally all together and you've got to work together on a ship if you're going to accomplish anything. So circumstances have it that, yeah, they're going to start feeling like a crew and they're working together for one goal. And and so, yeah, you get that camaraderie and feeling like, oh, this is my, you know, regular next gen people. So I, I did notice the change and that sort of switch because now they have this common enemy of de- defeating the Cardassians. Um, but that may just be temporary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it may be. So, you know, the Riker and Troy in the prime universe, of course have, you know, a special interest in each other. Yes. A relationship, a relationship, but, uh, What about this universe, Amy? I mean, you're a big Deanna Troy fan. I am. And this issue, I'm not that impressed with Troy's character. We really only get to see her on one page. And I I feel like I was really surprised when uh, Riker says, I still don't trust you. And I don't know if I ever will. And I was like, oh, my gosh, where did that come from? Uh, But then they go ahead and make out, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But I just, and then that last frame, I'm sorry. She's like pining away for him. Oh, no, that's not going to work, especially if we're in the mirror universe. Like, no, she's not going to pine over Riker. She's going to probably be the one that ends up killing him. I don't know. I mean, it just seemed that was too, (laughs) I just didn't like it. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I didn't like that part of it, of this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt odd to me. And going with uh, what happens at the end and, and how we see them at that kind of uh, reception at the end, mm-hmm. I feel like they're setting up the idea that these two are kind of like where Riker and Troy are sort of in our universe where they're serving together on a ship and there's some feelings there. But, you know, Riker's still going to be chasing after other women and Deanna's going to be, you know, not with him, but with this kind of close friendship or something uh, with the kind of mirror universe twist on it, that there's obviously these agendas and stuff as well. But I don't know, it felt a little forced to me, like they were just trying to maneuver them into certain positions and it didn't feel earned, if that makes sense. I mean, if they wanted to do something different, then Riker would have been the one pining over her, Mm -hmm. you know, but to go in the same direction as, oh yeah, they're working together. They have a special feeling and a special relationship. Don't know really what it is. Like, yeah, we've seen that. We saw seven years of it. I don't know. 
I looked at it as because this is early on in the crew just now getting together and on the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And what we saw in the TV series is, you know, as Dan was saying, they, they weren't acting upon their feelings. There was, you know, well, we've got to be good Starfleet officers. We're serving together, as, you know, and senior crew. And so we shouldn't probably go there right now. And in the mirror universe, it's like, oh, it's all sex baby you know it's just like we're just acting on our feelings and she is pining on over him and but for all we know he's pining on her we just don't see that i don't know true Mm -hmm. enough it's almost like you know a tasha yard data situation Mm. from the first season (laughs) (laughs) that's how i'm gonna put it um and then the a really unique idea that uh of course, Wesley. Wesley, what what do you have to say? Oh, Captain, I figured everything out to save the ship. We'll split the saucer section off, and then we'll have the yacht, and we'll have three vessels that can fight the Cardassians that are coming to attack us. That's- I thought, is that a brilliant idea? Or I thought, I don't, yeah, they use, and Riker has to pilot the yacht because he's the best pilot there is in Starfleet. <laughs> I honestly thought, that Picard was kind of setting Riker up like Riker was suspicious. I was kind of suspicious too, but then we come back to, no, this Picard seems more like our quote Picard, you know, and it's not, you know, a setup. I thought he was going to sacrifice Riker somehow. Um, but you know, get the ambitious young first officer out of the way kind of thing. But that yeah, doesn't I wondered that too. I thought that too. Yeah, and Riker was definitely suspicious, but I love the idea. I read that and I was like, that's so awesome to give the Cardassians multiple targets, you know, and, and well, they were getting, you know, chased, but they couldn't go any faster because of the Horatio and Stargazer, like they didn't want to sacrifice them. So, well, if we have those two ships and then have the Enterprise be three, like that, I was very pleased with that idea. I liked that a lot. Yeah, I did too. I mean, the only thought I had was, why didn't they do this in the Prime Universe? Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was kind of, to me, it was like uh, predicting the Prometheus. (laughs) You know, the ship that could split into three parts on Voyager. It was like, oh, they thought of that before they actually had a ship that could do that. That's cool. Okay, I have to admit, Dan, that Amy and I talked on the other side of the page about this one thing. Uh Uh-oh. So Picard is on the Enterprise and he gives the order to LaForge to go at high warp with full stops every 1.5 seconds. (laughs) What what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's it's the Picard maneuver, but on speed i guess like it's you know taking it to the nth degree and i don't know this seemed very familiar to me having in just, what way well i i don't know that almost seems like they were jumping around this ship and attacking it from multiple angles just a few seconds apart that kind of thing hmm seems hmm. very familiar to something i might have seen in a recent television show Right? Isn't that? We yeah. We were totally saying that same thing. And it's like, oh, 133 jumps? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and we were wondering too, I mean, 
that episode was the last episode we saw, episode nine, as of as of this recording. And this issue just came out just weeks after that, which we know the comic would have been developed earlier because we know mm-hmm. it takes a lot of effort to do the artwork. And of course, the story has to be written and, you know, the whole publishing thing behind it, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, J.K. Woodward, I know, spends a lot of time on these because the art is just tremendous as always. We mentioned on every episode that we talk about this, but I wonder they could. Is this something that they got the idea from discovery maybe from the writers because idw is doing discovery comics and maybe they knew that was going and this was like a wink wink to that or do you think it's just a coincidence i think it was a coincidence i think what they're doing is because picard mentions the maneuver that he did before which was of course the picard maneuver which was you jump to high warp and you look like you're in two places at once and he figured, oh, this ship has three warp nacelles. We can do that faster and, and multiple times. So I really think it was kind of independently arrived at. It was, let's do the Picard maneuver, but a bunch of times kind of thing. So I, I think it, it it's visually sim- similar, but they came at it from two different angles. And it just coincidentally looks very similar. I, that's my guess anyway. You're probably right. Yeah, probably right. Actually, you're always right, so you're right. (laughs) I am most certainly not always right. (laughs) But thank you. So anybody have any other opinions about this? I know there's a character later on that shows up, Admiral Quinn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the writer of this obviously recently watched Conspiracy, I think, because we have Captain Trila Scott and we have Captain Walker Keel mm-hmm. and Admiral Gregory Quinn. So, you know, all those first season uh, captain characters and the Admiral from that whole storyline, too. So uh, it was interesting. Quinn was always somebody I thought we might see again in TNG and we never did. So it's well, cool to have the alternate oh, sorry, yeah. mirror versions of them here. Sorry, Amy, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Yeah, well, and... You know, that whole line of conspiracy that we see in season one is like, that's a really good thread that should be continued, and we just never saw it. So it's really cool to get that here in the comics. Now, this issue is number five, and it ends with, in the last panel, and it says, the end, question mark. Now, I was under the understanding that at least this first run of Broken Mirror would go six issues. So it ends with saying the end with a question mark. But I'm like, yeah, but don't we have one more? And I'm not really sure what I'm getting at is my research shows that this is issue number five of six. But I don't know when they say of six that there'll be an issue number six or if they're counting the free comic book date Mm -hmm. issue zero. And it's really zero through five of the six issues. I have yet to be able to confirm that there's yet another issue after this one. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure now. <laughs> well, when comics end, how do they usually end? Does it say uh, the end? Uh it it varies, but yeah, usually. I'm 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 thinking that issues 0 through 5 are going to show up in the trade paperback that is scheduled for March. Because mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything that says we're getting a, an issue number six. Not to say that we aren't, but the what, the fact that this 
This ends with the end question mark because back at Star Trek Las Vegas, they had mentioned IDW was there. They mentioned that this has been successful, that they want to do more with this mere universe and do more comics. So I think this is their way of teasing us that there's going to be possibly more Mm -hmm. and that there isn't another issue after this right now. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and I mean, storyline wise, it, I, I don't think there would be another issue in this storyline because it does wrap up very uh, neatly here, I think, with the this possibility for ongoing stories, I should say. Yeah. They do leave it open. But as far as like, there's no cliffhanger ending here other than the circumstances that they're in and, you know, going forward, there could be some interesting stories set in this uh in, in these circumstances, if that makes sense. Yeah. I guess the way I, I'm looking at it is, is this was a TV show. We just finished season one and we mm-hmm. think we're going to get a season two. We just don't know when. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm going to have to wait an indeterminate amount of time. Yes. Yeah, so I can't tell you when you're coming back to literary tracks. Oh again, Amy. man. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the world of comic book series that aren't ongoing series. (laughs) I've really enjoyed this. I mean, and even like Lieutenant Barkley at the very end is like, well, how many people have, you know, wanted to kill Picard? Like that's an invitation of, all right, let's go and explore all of the people who want to kill Picard. Yes. Indeed. (laughs) Well, there, there may be more stories eventually and uh, we may do something else in the near future that's related to this. Um, That's all I'm going to say. I'm working on something special. More to come. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I I have to say, I really enjoyed this. Like we, we mentioned some little nits and gripes with the story, but overall I have to say, I loved this series. I think I would love to see more in this. So, uh, you know, the more the merrier and, uh, I would love to see this continue. So great stuff from IDW. Agree. I agree. Yeah. Yep. I think we're all on the same page, the same comic page on this one. We all love this one. <laughs> so, well, Amy, thank you once again for joining us. And where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, you can find me here on the network as we talked about uh, hosting Earl Grey. That's our podcast here on Trek FM for Next Generation. I'm also on The Edge every once in a while. And you can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is to hang out in the Babel Conference, and that's our listeners group on Facebook. So for today's feature, we're going to talk about a Star Trek Titan novel. And if I did my counting correctly, this is number 10 of the novels that are titled Titan. They the US Titans appeared in the fall and and Destiny trilogy, but this is I think the 10th book and the first dedicated Titan book written by David Mack and we have David Mack with us. How are you doing, David? I'm just hunky dory, dude. Good. I'm so glad, dude. I'm so glad you could join us. Is it actually the 10th title published under the Star Trek Titan banner? I didn't realize there had been so many. I didn't either, but I looked it up and I counted it three times. <laughs> I mean, I know, I, I know there was Taking Wing. There was The Red King, right? Was yep. that, is that right? Yep, you're good uh, so far. Keep going. After that, what was, the, was it The Sundered? Orion's Hounds. 
Orion's Hounds. That was a great one by Christopher Albena. Yeah. And then there was Over a Torrent Sea. No, no, Sword of Damocles. Correct. Sword of Damocles, Over a Torrent Sea happens after Destiny. Yep. Uh, oh, well, uh, that only gets me to five. I know there was one by John Jackson Miller, and there were a couple by uh, James Swallow. There yep. was a Sight Unseen, and James did another one. I can't remember the title. It's eluding me. Yeah. That's synthesis. Synthesis. Yeah. synthesis. That's right. Synthesis, of course. That was all six. Right, so, all right. So, so that was number six. Mm -hmm. And there was Sight Unseen. And then there was the... Am I right? There was one by uh, John Sight, Jackson Miller? Yeah. Well, Sight Unseen was number nine. So you're missing seven and eight. And what were those? Uh, Fallen Gods by Michael Gordon. A. Martin. Oh, right. And oh, then, yeah, yeah. The... Right. John Jackson Diller did Absent and Enemies. Absent Enemies. It's number eight. Okay. Okay. And then nine is sight unseen, and I'm number 10. Yep. Wow. I had no idea that there had been 10 books so far under the Titan banner. Yeah. I'd lost, I lost, I'd actually lost track. I had simply asked who had done the most recent book, and that was James Swallow. And he and I had compared notes, and he brought me up to speed with where he had left everybody off in terms of the status quo what was everybody's status quo at the end of his book and that was really all i knew going into fortune of war i i just i lost a little bit of track there i guess well out of all the titan authors you're a 10 so there you go i am the i am the latest you're the latest so as you mentioned where things were left off uh where were things left off and how did things kind of kick off in this novel well one of the things that james was very quick to tell me about was that there was somebody at starfleet intelligence who was manipulating dalit sarai the new uh first officer of titan under captain christine vale and whoever this person at starfleet intelligence is they're pulling sarai's strings they're making her spy on vale and on riker and we don't find out who this mysterious person is at the end of Sight Unseen. We simply have this indication of there's a whole uh, spy tech thing going on that Sarai is part of, and that what's being held over her head is a form of blackmail, that she basically picked the wrong side during the miniseries The Fall. She thought she was doing the right thing. She thought she was supporting legitimate political authority, she provided intelligence to the president pro tem Ishan Anjar, who later was forced from that office in disgrace. And as such, she got herself bumped out of her position at Starfleet Command, and she ended up with some crappy backwater assignment at the edge of the galaxy. Her opportunity to come back into service as a field officer on starship duty came with serious strings, which was she was going to be a secret asset of Starfleet intelligence, and she was going to be made to spy on Captain Vale and Admiral Riker. So that was the first piece of the status quo that James gave me. The next thing he told me about was the ongoing worsening state of personal relations between Dr. Rahav Ray, the chief engineer who also designed the Titan, and most of his shipmates, particularly including Melora Pazlar, with whom he had a previous romantic relationship. It went sour, and he's just not been dealing with it, and he's kind of turned into a harassing ass about it. 
So that was the second piece of the puzzle given to me by uh, James. Next, he sort of took me through some of the updates that had happened to other characters' relationships, the supporting characters, uh, one of whom is Ranul Karu, the chief of security. And one of the things that James and I agreed on was that it was time for Karu to get some happiness in his life, some stability. He should get to have a relationship and not have to worry about it being shot out from under him for a change. So we did that. And I was going to make a big storyline out of something involving Tuvok, and I was going to pay off something that I thought I had set up way back in the Destiny trilogy. Uh, little did I realize that Kirsten Beyer had already done it uh, in her Voyager book, which I guess came out just before I was going to start writing that book. Uh, and I was rather cross when I found out she had sideswiped me and uh, without me knowing had done this entire thing with Tuvok in the Voyager books. And I was like, well, but Tuvok's part of Titan now. Why is she doing this in a Voyager book? I mean, I know he was on Voyager, the show, but we, we moved the character over to Titan. But anyway, she, uh, she scooped me on that one. And so I had to let that story go. And that was how we went. We went down the list of all these different characters and we said, who has had major developments? Who's kind of treading water? Who has untapped potential? And we uh, talked about some possibilities of where stories could be built. I had the germ of the idea, which was to take the TNG third season episode, The Survivors, in which the Enterprise goes to Delta Rana 4, finds the planet cooked to a crisp, except for a tiny little patch of green lawn with a house on it. And they discover the two survivors, Kevin and Rashawn Uxbridge. And they discover over the course of the episode that Kevin is an, this sort of immortal energy creature called a Dowd, and that Rashawn is actually dead and Kevin is making a duplicate of her because this species called the Husnak came and destroyed the planet and murdered Rashawn. And Kevin Uxbridge, the Dowd, using his godlike powers in a moment of rage and grief, killed all the Husnak everywhere. And what they never said in the episode was he didn't destroy their planets. He didn't blow up their ships. He didn't wipe out any of their technology or their infrastructure. He just killed all the Husnak. And of course, it makes sense to read it that way, because if the Dowd is uh, a generally peaceful creature who had this momentary lapse for which he now languishes in guilt, he would not have willy-nilly just destroyed entire planets. And we have to assume that the Husnak, with a population of 50 billion and interstellar travel capability, probably existed on numerous planets by that point. The, the Dowd would not have simply destroyed multiple planets because there would be a lot of collateral damage, innocent life forms, maybe not sentient, but still not deserving to die. So the Dowd very specifically and surgically exterminated the Dowd, and, uh, excuse me, exterminated the Husnak, and only the Husnak galaxy-wide. But again, left behind all of their ships, all the weapons, all the munitions, all the technology, and it's now just sitting out there in the void, waiting to be found. So that was the core idea of the book. And then what I did was I built the character stories that I inherited from James into that narrative as I uh, fleshed it out at the outline stage. 
What I like about the the book is that it does play as a sequel, in a sense, to that episode of The Survivors. And so what I did is I watched, of course, for the umpteenth million time, that episode of The Survivors, and then immediately jumped into this book. And it's such a great progression because the book starts off immediately after or somewhat during that episode and then we yes. jump ahead 20 years into the future to the USS Titan where Riker is the admiral on on the ship and of course he was there during the time in 2366 when this happened on the episode of the survivors right and in fact that I chose to open the book with a prologue from the point of view of the Husnock at this moment of their extermination, because it really is just this apocalyptic, almost supernatural moment where you see it all through the point of view uh, of this particularly proud member of the Husnak society. And I particularly, I, I chose to play this character as a particular bastard because they were described in the episode as a species of hideous intelligence. And I think we were meant to understand that they are violent, they are cruel, they're probably relatively autocratic and vicious. And it was a pleasure in a way to sort of create this highly unjust society of cruel creatures and then see them struck down by what amounts to the fist of God coming out of nowhere and just causing them all to spontaneously combust. I mean, they are all consumed by holy fire of vengeance and none of, and and this was the part that I really loved as I wrote this chapter. I realized it's not enough for them to all go up in flames. They have to know why they're going up in flames. So I made sure that the Dowd, at the moment he incinerates all 50 billion Hustock, plants in their minds the understanding of, this is why I'm burning you. And he shows them Rashan, and he shows them Delta Rana 4, and he makes sure that they know you brought this on yourselves. This was no accident. And uh, I think that's because you, if you're going to have vengeance, the person upon whom one is avenging oneself, they have to know. Otherwise, the vengeance is unsatisfying. If you just incinerate them, they don't know what happened. It could have been a solar flare from their point of view. But if you have that telepathic moment of you did this to yourselves and now you suffer, there's a moment of justice in that. Right. It's their last memory before they die is right. what action they took against him. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's the fact they die knowing that they are dying because of his vengeance. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's definitely powerful. I think it's one of the most and it's near it's at the beginning, which is probably the most powerful part of the book. But then speaking of power, then we have all these different ships and crews and different aliens from the Nausikans, the Ferengi, Orions, Klingons. I mean, just on and on that just they're looking to gain that power from the weapons mm -hmm. and the technology left behind from the. Well, there's three, yeah, there, there's, there, there's three specific factions who are trying to find the old Husnock weapons. The first group is the Nausikan Patriots of the Wind. They see themselves as freedom fighters, patriots, if you will. Uh, they're sort of like a, a militia fringe group. And the reason they exist is because during the Destiny trilogy, the Nausicaan homeworld got fried to a crisp by the Borg for no other reason than it was in the Beta Quadrant, it was in their path, it was populated, and it had a star drive capability, so the Borg annihilated it. 
And so the Nausicans, while maybe not the nicest people who've ever existed, they certainly didn't deserve this crap. And now their whole homeworld is burned to a crisp. They've got a bone to pick. And these guys are out here looking for anything that will let them even the score and, uh, <clears throat> pardon the phrase, make Nausicaa great again. Uh, so they're trying to get some measure of power that will allow the Nausicaan survivors, as few of them as there are, to at least regain some measure of political relevancy within the local uh, galactic sphere. Then the second faction is the Orion uh, Syndicate. And these are just your pure opportunistic black market criminals. And they're ruthless, they're effective, they're well-trained, they have mercenaries who are culled from various species, various military training. Some of them have Klingon backgrounds. But the idea is that the Orions simply employ people based on their skills, and they pay well, and they expect results. What they don't expect is that there's a traitor among their ranks who has been planted by, spoiler alert, the Breen. And the Breen are sort of one of my, you know, favorite go-to guys when I need a heavy who is going to be, you know, behind some sort of heavy-duty scheme in one of my Star Trek novels. I've gotten in the post-Nemesis era. I, I've come to enjoy using the Breen in this manner. And what I did differently with the Breen in this book as opposed to some of their appearances in books like Zero Sum Game, A Ceremony of Losses, uh, the Cold Equations trilogy, is that in most of the previous appearances, by the end of the book, the Breen were thwarted, and they've gone to all this trouble, all this expense, and all this sacrifice, and they keep coming away with nothing. It happened to them at the end of Disavowed and a couple of other books. At the end of this book, I'm not going to say how, and I don't want to spoil the specific details, of course, but the Breen come out of it, and you think on one hand, it looks like the Breen have been handed a defeat by the Titan and her crew. And I have one of the Breen officers say this to his commander, and the commander points out, did we really lose? We came away with this, this, and this. These are three clear wins, and our losses were minimal. Now compare that to what our enemies lost. The Federation lost this, this, and this. They took much heavier casualties than they did, they, than we did. They lost multiple starships. The Orion Syndicate lost this. The, the Ferengi lost that. Everybody took a hit in the gut except us. We walked away with a scratch on our nose, and we've got three clear wins to show for it. This is one of the few times when you think about it, if you really look and you read between the lines and you realize what the Breen have escaped with, you realize they came out ahead. This is one of the few times that, although it looks like a win for our heroes, it's also a win for the enemy. Yeah, it's basically like the Federation kind of just escapes losing everything. Like that's kind of their win. But, you know, the Breen, like you said, have had this kind of string of failures. And it is interesting to see them kind of come out a little bit on top this time. And I also have to say, just as an aside, uh, I remember getting a ways into this novel, kind of thinking in the back of my, my mind, oh, I'm kind of sad the Breen aren't in this one. I really like what David Mack has done with the Breen. <laughs> and then that reveal is like <laughs> a total woohoo moment for me because I was like, oh, yes, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, for, for fans who may have uh, been reading the Star Wars novels over the last couple of decades, the Breen commander, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, because I don't have any copies of the book in front of me, don't ask why, um, 
is sort of my take on the Admiral Thrawn character from Star Wars. Cool, calm, unflappable, very polite, not one to lose his temper, not one to throw a hissy fit, shows respect for the power and talent of his enemies, takes defeats and setbacks in stride, but does not lose his shit. You know, as opposed to some of my previous Breen commanders who maybe did not take setbacks quite so well. I tried to write the primary Breen antagonist in Fortune of War as somebody who's very cold, very smart, very professional. Yeah, there's the, I for me, the interactions with him and Captain Vale over the view screen were really interesting because in Star Trek, you often get that blustery enemy who's making huge pronouncements. But in this one, you get two commanders who are basically citing regulations and rules of engagement at each other. And I thought that was a really interesting take. Yeah, in many ways, he's a very good foil for a Starfleet officer because he treats Starfleet captains with decorum and respect. He uh, has that sense of formality and he addresses them that way. And, you know, there's none of this, you know, I will destroy you. I will see your atoms scattered through space. It's not that. It's, I beg to differ with your reading of the Treaty of Algernon uh, 2359. As I understand the terms of that agreement, you have no authority in this sector. As such, I am not bound at this time to comply with your request. And I must respectfully ask that you withdraw to a minimum of this many parsecs, or it will be treated as an act of hostility. And he's just, he's so cold and businesslike about it. It's like you're suddenly dealing with a lawyer. Uh, and But again, the inspiration was Admiral Thrawn. And anybody who maybe has been watching uh, the last couple of seasons of Star Wars Rebels, the animated series, they have done such a great job with the Admiral Thrawn character. Because every time you see him and he comes into a story, you know that A... He's never going to lose his calm. Two, or sorry, B, I'm, I'm getting my order mixed up here. B, he's going to keep his stuff together even when it looks like he's lost. C, even when it looks like he's lost, he actually hasn't. I remember there was one episode they did where they had wiped some information out or had stolen some map and had obliterated some other information. And he said, yes, I realize it looks like we lost. He says, however, what they've told me is, by doing what they've done, they've actually narrowed down the possible star systems they're in from about 1,000 down to about 100. So we're now 10 times closer than we were to knowing where they were. Sure, they may have taken the exact piece off the map, but they've still whittled down the choices. Every time our heroes think they've thwarted him, they've actually simply allowed him to eliminate certain other possibilities and he just gets that much closer and that much closer because he's patient. He plays it like a game of chess. He'll let you take a bishop here or a knight there because he knows sooner or later he's going to get your king. And he's going to keep coming at you slow and patient because he's looking 8, 12, 15 moves ahead. You're thinking three moves ahead and he's way past you. He'll let you have this piece. Take this piece. I don't care. I expected you to take that piece. I need you to take that piece because it overextends you and puts you within my reach five moves down the line. That's the kind of thinker he is, and that's the kind of thinker I wanted for my Breen commander in Fortune of War. 
Wow, yeah, because I'm very familiar with Grand Admiral Thrawn, and I didn't even make that connection, but I totally see that right now, and and, and that's just awesome. And 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 the discussion about about Vale and her interaction with him, I mean, I, just major kudos to Vale in this book. I mean, she's really proven herself to be the captain, especially with her interaction with Admiral Riker. I mean, Riker's just trying to, you know, he, he knows he needs to step back and not get involved, but then yet again, he has to question her and she puts him in his place. And those scenes were just awesome. Yep. That was something I had talked about specifically, not only with James Swallow, but with my editor, Margaret Clark. And we had realized that part of what was happening in the Titan books with the promotion of Riker to Admiral was that he was still trying to act like a captain because on some level, the writers of the books were still thinking of him as a captain. And as a result, whenever he second guesses Vale on the bridge, he winds up acting like someone who is mansplaining to a perfectly capable woman. And that's just a deeply offensive thing. So we decided to address it head on to let the phenomenon manifest itself at a point where it seemed like it would, and then just have Vale shut that down and just say, this is my bridge, this is my ship, and you're not going to question my orders in front of my crew on my bridge. Be useful or get out of my way. And she's just not taking any crap. And that's when you know he's able to step back, and he very wisely puts her in operational command of the fleet. Says, I'm going to set the strategic objective. I'm going to let the tactical side fall to you. And I'm going to get out of your way and let you do your job. And it kills him. By the end of the book, he's desperately, he wants to say something. He wants to get in. And yet he knows that's the worst possible thing he can do. It kills Riker. But by the end of the book, he learns to keep his mouth shut and let her do her job. Yeah, I really love Riker's role in this because... Like you say, to me, this this feels like the first time that Riker's really being an admiral. And like you say, that whole scene with him on the bridge, I really love that because he's in the way more than anything else. And yeah. I love when he kind of comes to that realization. And, you know, one of the tactical officers starts to leave his post to help him because he's just been showered in sparks and debris and yells at him, mind your post, don't pay attention to me. Like, I shouldn't even be here. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's that point where he realizes I'm more of a liability on this bridge than an asset. They don't need me to be here. And by being here, I might actually distract somebody at a critical moment because they're worried about the flag officer. So it was it was an interesting experiment to try and shift my mindset as an author to see what happens when you take this character who you want to have him as the the hero driving the story. And what's, what it's actually about is he has to realize he has evolved in his career and in his life to a point where that's not his role anymore. And he has to accept that his life has moved on to something else. And he has to trust someone else to be that person. And he has to give them the agency they need to become that person. Well, and it's it's got to be tough to write a character like this that is from... TNG that was one of the lead characters and then really gets his own set of books as the captain of the Titan, but that's pretty short lived. And now he's an admiral, but you got to keep him with the ship, but he can't be the captain of the ship. So he can't act that way. And, but he's also got to be the lead of the book because he's 
the most prominent character within the Titan series that comes from TNG, he and Troy, and of course, Tuvok from Voyager. So, you know, how do you write that? I know you're not writing the next, the next Titan novel necessarily, but where do you take uh, Riker from here? Well, the journey that, uh, that Riker has been on, and you're right, he didn't get to spend a lot of time as a captain. And it's ironic because he resisted being promoted to the captaincy for so long. He finally gets that promotion. And then for political reasons during a time of turmoil, he immediately gets bumped out of that role and winds up going up the chain of command into flag officer rank. He barely got used to being a captain. He barely had any time to enjoy the job at all. And then it's behind him. Now he's onto a whole new set of challenges. So it's interesting in that it's basically, it's about writing a, a character who is facing a changing world that has changing expectations of him. And he has to change his expectations uh, as a result. So that instead of being in command of one ship and being responsible for the fate of one crew, he now has operational command of an entire expeditionary group, multiple starships charged with exploring multiple sectors of space on the frontier. Uh, So he's got much bigger fish to fry. He now has a lot of lives, a lot of ships, a lot of commands. He has to think in terms of big picture strategy. He has to think logistically about multiple ships and crews, keeping them supplied, keeping them in contact, coordinating their efforts. He has to think in terms of how soon do they all need to rotate back to home base? Uh, What kind of support are we going to have if we go too far out? And then when a mission like this comes along where it's suddenly call everybody back together, we need all guns pointing in the same direction, then he has to balance that, uh, you know, the, he, he has to balance the role of being the guy who's setting the agenda and saying, here's the mission, this is what we have to do, but then realizing that he's got a whole, you know, he's got like four capable captains who all report to him. And at some point, he's just got to get out of their way and let captains be captains. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's about growing older. I think in that respect, the Titan series, from the point of view of Riker, it's about growing older. It's about moving out of just adulthood into middle age. It's about realizing that the role you used to play when you thought you were the, the hero of the story, now maybe you're not the hero of the story, but in a way you've taken on sort of a Potter familias role, which has a lot more baggage and expectation. Now you're responsible for not just your immediate family. Now you're responsible for an extended family. And there's pressure that comes with that. Realizing that, you know, as you move up the chain, maybe there's less direct work for you to do, but you also have to be the voice of reason. You've got to be the the guiding voice. You've got to be the one who offers wisdom and passes it down the line at the right moment so that it does some good and doesn't just get in somebody's way. That's a hard role to play. And in a way, it's one that Riker brought on himself by refusing the captaincy for so long uh, until he was pretty much into middle age himself. uh, He pretty much missed a lot of years of independence. And then he gets bumped to the Admiralty and it's like, well, what did you expect, dude? welcome to it yeah and the fact that when we think of the titan crew we think of Riker, we think of veil and now we're uh we've been introduced recently to a new character that's the first officer who 
really, I would say, is the more central character of the Titan crew in this novel than the others, and that's Sari. Uh, you mean Sarai? Sarai. I'm sorry, Sarai. Sari, Sarai, whatever will be, will be. Um, that's my singing effort for the show. So her loyalty, loyalties are divided because she has an admiral there that's telling her, hey, you know, keep an eye on Riker and Vale and, may, and make sure that the, the technology that you discover out there, the, these weapons and such from the, the Husnox isn't destroyed. And, you know, spy on your captain and spy on this admiral. But at the same time, she has a loyalty to them and agrees with the actions that they're doing. So what was the deciding factor in putting her on this path? And are there any thoughts going forward with her? Well, the funny thing about Dalit Sarai as a character was that I saw her name in the roster for Titan. And I saw some of the notes that James sent along. And I said to him, this character sounds familiar. Where did he come from? And he had to write back to me, Dave, you invented this character. She's from your novel, A Ceremony of Losses, which was part of the Fall miniseries. And I remember it and I went, oh, you're right, of course. I, I did invent this character. And she has this whole tragic backstory where she used to be a field operative, basically a James Bond type of character for Starfleet Intelligence. And during a particular operation, something went wrong and as a result of collateral damage, an innocent child gets killed, and she gets rotated back to desk duty and taken out of the field. And she's been plagued with guilt over this ever since. And that's part of what drives her actions in a ceremony of losses and winds up only deepening her disgrace by the end of it. Then James brings her back, puts her into this XO role where she has, as you point out, these conflicted loyalties. But she wants to be a good first officer. She wants to be a good Starfleet officer. She wants to have some pride in herself. And the fact that she is leading this double life where she's spying on her captain and her admiral for someone back at SI, it is preventing her from feeling really engaged in her role as first officer. It's a role in which she should be playing a, a part in maintaining the morale of the crew. She should be uh, helping to run things day to day. She should be the right hand of the captain. And she's having trouble integrating herself into that role because psychologically she knows that her loyalties are divided. She can't invest in the morale of a crew that she feels on some level she is betraying with her presence every single day. And it's eating her alive. She can't stand it. And she's got the additional problem of being as she is an Afrosian who has a certain degree of empathy and whatnot, she immediately attracts the attention of Rahav Ray, who's going through his own emotional stew of turmoil. And she has to keep him at arm's length and say, I don't care that we're from the same species. That does not make me your sounding board. Get out of my face and don't come back. She's got Troy telling her that she has to maintain the crew morale when she can't even maintain her own. So Sarai is this just fascinating mix of she wants to be a better person, but she's caught in a trap. And she did end up taking center stage in a lot of ways in this book, just because I found her dilemma to be one of the most dramatically interesting. And she winds up taking command and finding a certain amount of nobility and bravery in herself during 
these times of combat, these times of peril, and when she has to become an inspirational leader to her crew during a time of combat on the ground when, you know, when the energy pulses are flying and it's do or die time, that's the moment that kind of makes her remember, this is who I wanted to be. This is the kind of person I wanted to be. And that's what flips the switch for her when she makes her critical decision at the end of the book about how to resolve her conflicted uh, state of loyalty. Well, and the the exchange she has with me the admiral my first thought is that this admiral is a bad admiral but not really because when there's this technology out there that one of these other groups could get hold of i mean you want to protect that and make sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands but at the same time there's a lot that could be learned from the technology and so you would not want it to be destroyed you would want to study it um, did you approach the, the Admiral as being a bad moral in a sense or not? No, and I don't think James did either. The impetus, as I understood it, for why Admiral Marta Botanides at Starfleet Intelligence has taken this interest in monitoring Riker and Vale is that during the whole political upheaval that happened during the fall miniseries, which was a five-book thing I think we did back in 2013, there was the sense of uh, nobody really knew who to trust, and it felt like there were a lot of competing political viewpoints and political agendas at work. And Riker, although he came down firmly on the side of idealism, justice, as you know, the Starfleet way, et cetera, because it set him on a path to conflict with the sitting Federation government, it kind of got him put on a watch list. And it means that now there's people who are wondering well, what's going to happen the next time he has to choose between his conscience and following orders. Is this guy going to be a problem? Are we going to have trouble with him on the frontier? Is this somebody we can really trust to have our best interests uh, at heart when he's out of contact? And so somebody at SI, the head person, Botanides, gets it in her head. Maybe we should just have somebody who is close to his chain of command, who can keep an eye on him. And if he starts to go off the rails, if he starts to go off the reservation and starts making decisions that he thinks are morally upstanding, but happen to completely run afoul of the best tactical or political interests of the Federation, we should know about it as soon as possible. That's really what it is. It's not that somebody is trying to cut Riker off at the knees. It's not that somebody's trying to fit him for a straight jacket or a, a black site, you know, cell. It's that they're worried that this is a guy who has shown that he sometimes is going to put his sense of right and wrong ahead of what the regulations tell him to do. And during this time of political instability that follows the Ishan Anjar crisis, uh, which is, you know, coming on hot on the heels of the uh, the rise of the Typhon Pact, which, of course, follows on the heels of the Borg invasion. And they're just wondering, you know, which domino is going to fall next and completely upend our political situation. Um, they're thinking, you know, when the next domino falls and we once again find ourselves embroiled in political uh, and military chaos, what is this guy going to do? Is he one of us or is he a maverick? And they're worried that if he's too much of a maverick, maybe we need somebody in position 
who can rein him in either by talking reason to this guy or if necessary, by taking him and Vale, who they're also worried is more loyal to Riker than she is to them. They're thinking maybe we need somebody who we can have ready to neutralize them if they go wrong. So that, that that's really where that's all originating from. Yeah, and I, I also like how Troy, she doesn't have a big role in this book, but she's there's that tension that Sarai has when she gets around Troy because she's gonna she feels like she's gonna be figured out by Troy, of course, you know, being an empath and and so I like the tension there and I'd love to see that develop more. Of course, you know, that would be another book, but that I like that dimension there. Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff going on with Troy uh, in this, especially as she's putting Sarai in her place. But Troy is one of those people where by this point in her life, she has enough experience with her own empathic talent to not abuse it. I mean, it's not like something that's always on and she can't help it. She can tune it out. She can choose not to focus it upon somebody. She can choose to give people zones of privacy. And she does for the most part, because there is a certain amount of invasiveness that comes with being a telepath who's always on. And I think one of the things the show established back during Next Generation was that Betazoids who find it difficult to block out the thoughts of others eventually sequester themselves. They take themselves out of the social mix, not only for their own good, because it's just overwhelming. It's too much to have all those thoughts intruding upon your own, but also because it's not fair to the people around you to intrude upon their privacy. Uh, so I think that Troy, we can probably surmise after a lifetime of practice with her gifts, uh, does not abuse them and would give people their privacy. But it is fascinating how she relates to someone else who has a similar empathic talent, uh, someone like Sarai or to a lesser degree, Rahav Ray. So another character that I found really fascinating in this book was uh, the chief engineer, Dr. Rahav Ray. And he has a very interesting story going on. And there's a lot of darkness to this character. There's a lot of uh, really dark feelings coming from him and a lot of things that he's going through. I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about where he's coming from as a character and, and how he's dealing with what's going on in his life. Shen Rahavre is in a depressive downward spiral. He has been in a downward spiral for a long time, probably since the Destiny trilogy. And it's been a long journey for him, a long day's journey into night, you might say. And it has to do partly with the fact that he cannot emotionally connect well with other people. And he discovered this the hard way when he broke up with Melora Paslar a few books back. And he just never got over it. To a certain degree, he continues to stalk her. He cannot get over her. He's always wondering what she's up to, who she's seeing now, uh, and one thing after another. And that was the impression I had got from the handoff information from James Swallow was that Rahav Ray is just a guy who is eating himself alive inside because he doesn't connect with anybody. He feels alone. Uh, he's angry. He's bitter. He's hurting. Uh, he feels lonely. He feels unappreciated. He feels unloved. And he doesn't know how to deal with it. 
He doesn't know how to fix it. He doesn't know who to talk to about it. He's too proud to seek therapy for it. And even if he did seek therapy, he wouldn't listen to a damn thing they told him, at least not at the beginning of the book. And he is directing all of his rage at Melora Paslar, not because she deserves it, not because she actually broke his heart in such a huge manner, but because she is the last target that he has because of their breakup and the fact that he hasn't moved on since. He continues to direct all of this at her, but it's not all about her. It's mostly just about him. It's the fact that he feels broken. He feels empty. He doesn't know how to connect. He never really has. He's never been good at connecting with other beings. He's never been good at caring about anybody but himself. And now he's reaping that bitter harvest uh, of these seeds that he has sown over the years. Um, and it comes to a head where he has this fight with Pazlar while they're trying to do something vital to save the ship. And he has that sort of moment with the uh, the Tellarite engineer who thinks that uh, he's flirting with her because Tellarites flirt by arguing. But the really telling moment with Rahav Ray comes when the ship is getting just the utter tarnation pounded out of it. And he suddenly, you know, when you put him in a crisis situation, he shifts into high gear and his crew thinks that he's a hero. They think that he is doing the most heroic things. He's charging into the flame. He's charging into radiation-filled chambers. He's pulling people out of danger and then going back in. And they think that he must be the bravest son of a they've ever seen. What they don't realize is he's not brave. He has a death wish. He wants to die. He doesn't want to be saved. He doesn't want to be pulled out. He wants to go out in a blaze of glory because he's in that much pain, and this is the only way he can think of to get out of it. And so, you know, he he has this moment where he just, you know, lays, you know, tries to lay down his life in engineering. His own engineers pull him out again. And he survives. And it, uh, it comes down to a point where by the end of the book, it's handled in just a sort of an offhand manner, uh, a note that Sarai gives in her last update to Admiral Botanides that Rahavre has been temporarily transferred off the ship because he's receiving you know, uh, extended therapy at some starbase. It's meant, the way it's set up, it sounds as if he's getting medical therapy because he was pretty badly injured, pretty badly burned, and suffered some serious internal injuries. What I had talked about with James and with my editor is that the therapy he's really getting is psychological counseling. Uh, this is the point at which somebody, maybe it's Troy, maybe it's somebody else, maybe it's Ra Havre himself, somebody figured out this guy needs to see a psychiatrist. He needs to go to counseling. He's not fit for duty. This guy has a death wish and he has to be taken off the line. Whether it was Rahav Ray who had this moment of self-insight or somebody else did it for him, that's up to the editors, that's up to the author of the next book. But the concept is that he got pulled off of the line and pulled out of his job because either he or somebody else figured out this guy is not right anymore. This guy is broken and he needs to get real help. Yeah, that moment with him in the engine room, I, I have to say, was incredibly moving. And that that final line where he reveals what's going on uh, in his in his own mind, 
it's it's one of those things you kind of see coming, but it's it's still just so distressing to hear, uh, you know, a quote unquote voice put to that thought. And it's just, oh man, you really end up feeling for this guy, even though he's being so abrasive and so such a, you know, an ass, like you say, but you know, the reason behind that and what's really going on, you know, it, it's a really good illustration of, of how people can have so many things going on that others just have no idea. Yeah. I mean, and that kind of goes back to, you know, things that I learned in therapy over the years, which was, there is a quantitative, well, there's, there's a difference in how men uh, tend to handle feelings of depression and how women tend to handle feelings of depression. Um, and this may be, you know, not necessarily true in alien cultures. We have to allow for some variation of uh, culture, especially among, say, the Afrosians who have an empathic quality to them. But men, as a general rule, at least among humans, <laughs> we'll qualify that, uh, tend to respond to depression by channeling it out as anger. Because, especially in Western society, men are conditioned not to show emotion, especially not strong emotion, particularly not strong negative emotion, unless it's anger. Fear, sadness, uh, grief, anything of this nature is considered unmasculine. And so there is a certain social uh, opprobrium that is you know, uh, loaded onto those feelings, and men are socialized from boyhood not to express feelings that way. And so when men are grappling with feelings of depression, they, rather than turn those feelings inward and uh, manifest a depression in the sort of lethargic, uh, classically depressive state of, say, the Sylvia Plaths of the world, they channel it outward and they manifest it as anger at other people. And it's often one of those things where men don't even realize they're doing it, and as a consequence... Uh, depression gets passed on from father to son like a dark inheritance uh, where you don't even realize you're doing it, uh, especially because earlier generations had no vocabulary for this sort of thing. And I see Ra Havre has having sort of gone through something like that where despite the culture that he's from, uh, some aspect of his upbringing or his parentage or his youth conditioned him to try and hide these feelings or to try and hide the expression of these feelings in anything that undermined his sense of power, his sense of authority, his sense of control. Control is a very big thing with Rahav Ray. He loves to control the details. He loves to come off as the mastermind who runs the engineering room, who sees all the variables, who knows how to make everything work. And anything that undermines his self-image as being this master of control, whether it's control over the elements that he's given charge of in the engine room or control over himself or control over, say, subordinates, uh, anything that undermines his perception of himself as a man in control, he rejects it. But the moment he rejects it, it means he can't deal with it. And that feeling, that emotion has to go somewhere. So it gets channeled outward as dickishness, as anger, as uh, antagonism, as sarcasm, as a holier-than-thou attitude, as condescension. He would rather put people at arm's length because he feels like that's at least controlling them by keeping them out of his immediate sphere than allow them into his intimate sphere 
and let them see just what a mess he is. And it's for him, it's all about control and fearing the loss of that control. But you can only live like that for so long without help, without a support network, without somebody else to share the load, as Sam Gamgee would have said. Um, at some point, you break under the load. And this is the book where Rahavre breaks under the load. Yeah, and it really is very heartbreaking to see. And I really did appreciate that line at the end as well, that he was kind of getting some help. And, and somebody, like you said, somebody realized that that was needed. That was excellent. I suspect it was probably Troy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was kind of my thought as well. At least that's kind of what my brain filled in there. <laughs> I would think that's the most likely explanation. Again, we'll see when the next Titan book comes out. Well, another thing, kind of something that popped into my head while I was reading this, at least in, in the early chapters, as the kind of different factions started lining up to uh, try and figure out the Husnok technology, my mind went to the episode The Chase. And huh. I started thinking of this novel as kind of the chase on speed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in that episode, of course, we have, you know, the Cardassians, the Klingons, the Romulans, and the Federation all you know, trying to figure out this mystery and what's the secret of this secret hidden in our DNA. But in this one, of course, it's a trove of military power and all these groups are chasing a goal and being really cutthroat about it. And I was kind of wondering about your process for coming up with the twisting turns in the plot and deciding which entities were involved in this particular chase. Well, I outline the story the way I outline so many. I start with a beat outline which is basically a bunch of bullet points with blank space after them on a sheet of paper. I planned about 80 beats, give or take, to do a full-length novel. And then I subdivide that set of empty bullet points. I take the middle one and I label it midpoint reversal. And then I have end of act one usually comes at about beat 20. I have at beat 60, end of act two. Uh, I know that Act 3 will consist of a, you know, race to climax or whatever. I know that I want a few scenes of denouement at the end. I know I have to open with an instigating incident. I have Act 1 turn, and so on and so forth. So I, I have a pretty solid classic three-act structure that I, I start work with. And then as far as choosing who were the players and how do I reveal them, it started out with just, asking myself, well, who in the Star Trek universe at this period in the continuity, who would have an interest in this? Who would be most likely to benefit uh, from Husnach technology? Who would want it? And the very obvious answers were going to be uh, a hostile power, such as the Breen, a mercenary power, such as the Orions, uh, and then I brought in just, you know, for fun, I thought, well, you know, the Nausicans. Nausicans are always kind of badass, and they got a really crappy deal with uh, Destiny where their homeworld got fried. I could see them seeing this as their path back to being politically relevant. And then I thought, well, the Ferengi would want in on it, or at least some Ferengi would, because there's profit to be made here if you can get your hands on it. And if you can be the, the choke point that controls it, there's a lot of latinum waiting to be found. And once I had that notion, I thought, well, then the classic figure to go for is Gala. And Gala had been in prison, but there was a prison break, and Gala was associated with Brunt. And that went back to some novellas that uh, Paula Block and Terry Erdman had written, so I checked that out. 
and I concocted a an Orion crew who were going to be my pirates. And then I had the idea for the Breen getting involved. And I thought it would be one of those things where wouldn't it be funny if every time the reader thinks they've figured out who the big bad is, I keep knocking that one down until finally near the you know middle of, uh, not the middle of Act 2, but maybe around the first half of Act 2, you find out, no, it's really the Breen who are pulling the strings on all of this. Those are the guys you got to be really afraid of. At that point, the the stakes in the story significantly escalate. So I planned out a series of reveals. And then I also had the pack leads involved because the pack leads are the kind of idiots who are always looking to do anything the cheap and easy way. And I thought it would be funny to have the pack leads get in the mix. Uh, And then as I start thinking about, well, everything you introduce at the beginning of a story, you have to pay it off somehow by the end of the story. There has to be a reason for it to be there. And as I began trying to see the symmetry in the story between the beginning and the end, that was how I arrived at merging the Pac-Led storyline with not only the Breen storyline, but also the Ferengi storyline. And uh, in particular, the fusion of the Breen, not the Breen, excuse me, the uh, Ferengi storyline and the Pac-Led storyline added up to the ending with Brunt that I just love so much, which is Brunt just being there to put the gun to his rival's head. Uh, Because Brunt is just one of those characters where he's so much of an anti-hero and he's really just in it for the profit, but also his own reputation. And I just, I had a lot of fun writing Brunt the bounty hunter, you know, who's basically back in the field just one more time because he cannot let this affront to his business reputation go unchallenged. It would be bad for business if he does not rein in Gala. Uh, so Gala, who of course thinks that he's about to, to you know, visit holy vengeance upon the poor pack leads, who you kind of feel bad for because they just keep getting kicked around. You feel like, oh no, Gala's going to hurt the poor pack leads. And then there's Brunt with his gun to Gala's head, and you're just like, oh, yeah. You suck, a, suck on that, Gala. Oh, suck that scene that. was so beautiful. <laughs> like, talk about a cathartic moment in the book. Like, that was brilliant. Basically, the people who deserve to, to, to suffer at the end of this book suffer at the end of this book, with maybe the exception of the Breen. But the Breen takes some losses. They don't get out unbloodied. Uh, they definitely come out, I think, winners just about more than anybody else. Um, but, yeah, it's nice to see that the the really greedy, avaricious bastards, the most ruthless bastards in the story, uh, they get theirs. Yeah, they, definitely. And I have to say, like, Paula Block and Terry Erdman's most recent ebook novella came out just this past, past month, I, the Constable. And I remember finishing reading it thinking like, oh man, I really wish Brent was in that. I missed that guy. I wanted to picture Jeffrey Combs. And then I get a couple chapters into this book and lo and behold, surprise of surprise. Like that was great. <laughs> I, th- I think that's why they weren't able to use Brunt is that my book had already been written and approved by the time they pitched or had sold iConstable. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I, I suspect that might've been part of why Brunt does not appear in their story. I would totally, by the way, watch or read a series of Brunt the Bounty Hunter books or shows because that would be great. Oh, that's sort of like Dog the Bounty Hunter, but different. That's funny. I like that. <laughs> well, maybe when Discovery wraps up one day, we'll get 
Brunt the Bounty Hunter series on CBS All Access. You never know. Hey, it might it might even happen sooner than that. You don't know. CBS All Access is going to need content when uh, Discovery goes away for ten months. They're going to be looking to fill that gap. Yeah. Maybe Brunt the maybe Brunt the Bounty Hunter is the reality style TV series they need. Yeah. Oh, wouldn't that be funny? You can get <laughs> bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when Brunt comes for you? Need like reality handheld camera, and Brunt is chasing guys down on desert planets. It'd be like Kevin Rubio's troops, but with Ferengi. It'd be funny. Oh, it'd be like a. Of oh, course, we... Quentin, Quentin Tarantino is probably gonna do that for his Star Trek movie. <laughs> It'd be called Desert Ferengi or something. Man, it would be like that show would be a half hour sitcom version weekly of the Magnificent Ferengi. I mean, I'm there. Like, that would be amazing. <laughs> hey, guys, we yeah, got to be careful with this because if CBS is listening, they're just going to steal our ideas. And we're, we're not going to get paid for this. We're not going to get paid anyway. Well, who are you kidding? <laughs> You know what I want to see if Tarantino is making a Star Trek movie? I want to see the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. Remember the scene when all the guys are in the restaurant and they're having the whole fight over not tipping? I want to see a bunch of Ferengi having the fight over not tipping with a, with like one guy, with like one off-world or one alien who does tip and all the Ferengi are pissed that he tips. I, I think that you know Tarantino should just make his Star Trek movie a whole bunch of pastiche of all of his other movies, and it should just be a big Star Trek homage to every movie he's ever made. I'm picturing that scene and the off-worlders a bullion, and it's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it totally works. The thing is, I mean, I say this to somebody who's already worked in homages to Tarantino in my own Star Trek books. Who could forget Vanguard Book 5, Precipice, the whole thing where they finally kill off Zet Zeal and uh, Cervantes Quinn steals his ship, and he has to say to somebody, you know, uh, it's not a this, it's a Starhopper. Who's Starhopper is this? Zets. Who's Zet? Zet's dead, baby. Zet's dead. <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah. Oh, man. Vanguard. That's a series I need to go back and reread again. Great books. Anyway. Indeed. Nostalgia. What are you going to do? Well, is there anything else about this book that we haven't covered that you think uh, you want to touch on real quick? Wow, let me think here. It's been a while since I read it. I actually uh, wrote it a long time ago. I've been waiting a long time for this book to come out, so let me think here. Yeah, how long ago? Uh, I mean, it's... I must have written it last year sometime. Okay. It's, it's been a while. Um, I don't think so. I, I, I think that pretty much touches on, like, all of the really important stuff. I mean, we, we got all the various story threads. We got the Ferengi in there. We got the the spy we got the whole relationships thing with raha bray we got I, th I think we got it okay well there's there definitely is a lot in this book but it's it's it moves really quick we were talking about you know the chase on speed i mean it's just there's a lot going on it's just moving really quick i mean i it is a blood it's a bloodthirsty book i'll say that yeah. i mean we we blow up ships we gun down people some interesting notes that i hadn't even thought about when i was writing it but some fans immediately picked up on this and I, I credit their uh, sharp reading skills. I mentioned the fact that one of the things that the Breen get away with is not an actual working weapon, but they do escape with the Husnach schematics for the anti-stellar munitions, which we do see used to blow up a star and the hyperspace shockwave or whatever shatters a planet, uh, which is the scene depicted on the cover of the book. 
And somebody very astutely mentioned on one of the Star Trek forums, gee, that sounds a lot like the sort of thing that might have happened to the Hobus supernova that destroys Romulus and the brain have it. And we know the brain don't particularly like being subordinate to the Romulans and the Typhon pact. Maybe that will come back in a future book. And I thought, huh, maybe it will. Mm. Now, that, now that you've brought that to my attention, I hadn't even thought about that. But that's Damn. not. But that's not bad. I could work with that. So, wow. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, of course, I was thinking of Soren's weapon the whole time and all that stuff. So was I. So was I. But that's brilliant. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a great idea. If you use that, I hope they pay you for it. Well, we'll see. I mean, if I use it in a book, they will. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, what are you gonna do? Well, I think you know. I really enjoyed this book. Uh, if if I didn't know that you wrote it, I probably would have guessed you did. Because <laughs> <laughs> it has your style in it. and yeah. I hope that's a compliment. It's uh, it's definitely a compliment for sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, but now I know you're, uh, this is December. You've got something coming in January. So tell us about that. It's not Star Trek though. No, it is not. It is... Uh... A book called The Midnight Front. It is the first book in my new Dark Arts series, which is an original series of novels I have coming from Tor Books. The concept of the Dark Arts series is that behind the scenes of 20th century geopolitical history that we know, there were secret cabals of magicians, sorcerers, uh, who were influencing or were part of events in ways that we didn't realize at the time. The first book, The Midnight Front, takes place in World War II. The big idea is that the Nazis had sorcerers working for them. So Churchill decides that the Allies need to get some sorcerers of their own. And they create The Midnight Front, which is the Allies' top secret magical warfare group. Our main character, a young guy named Cade Martin, loses his family at the beginning of the war when the Nazis come gunning for him, but kill his parents instead. And so on a path for revenge, the only way he can get revenge is to join the Midnight Front and go after the sorcerers who killed his family. Along the way, he finds out that all magic is predicated on the control of demons, which makes it very dangerous, especially if you make a mistake. And it comes with all sorts of hideous side effects, nightmares, nosebleeds, uh, bad habits, and which is why most magicians wind up as alcoholics and heroin addicts to quiet the demonic voices in their head and get a decent night's sleep from time to time. Uh, the problem, of course, is once you let the demons go, you still have the addiction and the bad habits. So it's a sort of a big, rollicking action-adventure, complex fantasy. Uh, Kirkus Reviews has called it equal parts gunpowder and brimstone. Uh, it's a project I've been working on for many years. It's a labor of love in many ways. It is painstakingly researched. It is secret history, not alt history. So the idea is that the events that I describe in the book are described in a way that suggests they could have occurred as part of the history that we know in World War II. So it's not an alternate universe. It's the idea that this could be right under our noses right now and we don't know it. I've also finished writing book two already, and that's turned into the editor. Book two is titled The Iron Codex, which is sort of a play on The Iron Curtain. The Iron Codex is set in 1954, 
and deals with the Cold War. It's more of a spy thriller rather than a war th- uh, war epic. The idea is that with each book in the series, each book is going to be a different kind of book. So book one is a war epic. Book two is a spy thriller. Book three, The Shadow Commission, will be set in 1963, right after the Kennedy assassination. And that's going to be kind of a paranoid conspiracy piece. And then hopefully if these books sell well enough that Tor wants to buy more and extend the series, my hope is that we will proceed into either Summer of Love, like 68 or so, or into the early 70s and the 80s. And we could do a road story, like a Hunter S. Thompson-esque drug-fueled road trip. We could do a crime heist thriller. We could do corporate warfare books set in the 80s, you know, stuff like that. Um But the idea is that with every book, the series does something different. It goes into a different era of history. Uh, It deals with a different kind of story. And it's just a different kind of book. So that it's not just war story after war story after war story. It's that every time you you pick up one of these, it's, well, what am I getting now? So you get war epic, spy story, uh, conspiracy thriller. You get drug-fueled road movie. You get heist. Uh, story. You get a crime thriller or a detective story. Um, so the idea is it's always changing up on you. And uh, I have high hopes for it. I hope it sells well enough that it gets to be an ongoing thing. Well, I certainly hope so too. And ever since you first mentioned this whole idea, it sounded really, really intriguing. And to all the listeners out there, I know you guys love David Mack's Star Trek stuff. I have a feeling you're going to really love this one. And publishers and authors really love pre-orders, I'm told. so. Yes, pre-orders are the lifeblood of authors and publishers. It's how a publisher knows that there's strong interest in the book, and the stronger the pre-orders are, the more copies they'll print, the better a presence the book will have in stores, which improves my odds of selling to people just walking by. So by all means, if this concept interests you at all, if you've enjoyed my Star Trek books at all, over the last 15 or so years, please pre-order a copy of The Midnight Front. It's available in hardcover. Uh, it's available in trade paperback. It will be available in audio format and in ebook, all on the same day. So whatever format best suits you, if you like to listen to your books on audio, audiobook comes out on January 30th. Same day, you can get it for an ebook on $9.99. You can get it in trade paperback for like 16 bucks, probably marked down to 10 something on Amazon. And right now, this probably won't be the case by the time this podcast airs, but right now, the hardcover is even on sale on Amazon. If you pre-order it, you can get it for like $18 instead of 27. So definitely pre-order this book, uh, check it out, give it a look-see. This is something I've been working on for a long time and uh, I, I really think The Midnight Front is probably the best book I've ever written. As far as just being a single work unto itself, uh, I think it is the single best book I've ever written. Excellent. Well, I can't wait for it to come out and hopefully get the word out there and, and, and some of our listeners might pick that up as well because, yeah, this looks really cool. Yeah, I would be I'd be really grateful for any support your listeners can offer. Yeah, and we've we've mentioned the book several times throughout the year here on the show. So, uh, yeah, and now it's finally coming out January thirty. It seems like it's been a long time. <laughs> a long time. It's been about three years coming. I signed the contract in January of twenty fifteen, and now January twenty eighteen, the book is finally coming out. 
So January 30th, Tuesday, January 30th, that's when the Midnight Front officially releases. Make sure you pre-order your copy before then. Well, before we let you go, I just want to take one minute to say last time we had you on the show, we were talking about your novel Star Trek Discovery Desperate Hours. And we, if I can remember correctly, I think uh, we had just saw the pilot or something. We were very early on in it. Uh, You had worked from the scripts to write this novel. Now you've seen the show like we have. have. Do you have any additional thoughts of what you saw versus what you read in the scripts? Well, only that uh, I was suitably surprised in episode 102, which I had not seen before my book was released. Uh, There's a scene near the end of my book uh, involving a mind meld between Spock and Burnham. And we see a moment from Burnham's childhood when the Vulcan Learning Center is bombed, and she is basically dead for about three minutes because of this bombing. The scene in my book shows Amanda, Spock's mother, pleading with Sarek to do whatever he has to to save Burnham's life, to bring her back from death's threshold. And that was based almost verbatim In fact, it was verbatim from the scripts that I was working from. And I checked every update on every script uh, update that went out on 102 to make sure that I stayed in sync as much as I could. So imagine my surprise when I see the final version of the episode. And when that scene comes on, Amanda's not in it. She's not in it at all. They completely cut her from the episode. Um, they don't. They never told me about this. They don't owe me any explanations. It's just one of those hazards you deal with as a tie-in writer. I made every effort I could to keep my book in sync with the pilot, but changes get made in the editing room, and you just can't uh, know what's going to happen there. So it's sort of a fun thing now where if you have picked up Des- uh, Desperate Hours and you've got the book and you get to that scene – And you go, wait a minute, that's not the scene I remember from the pilot. Think of the scene in my book as a little deleted scene from the pilot because they shot it. They wrote it. They shot it. It was cut in editing. So you can now imagine that my book contains the literary equivalent of a deleted scene from the two-part pilot. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. As far as as the show itself, I'm actually kind of behind. I've only had time to watch through episode 104 because I've been busy on other things. Uh, when the show was coming out, I was actually busy trying to finish writing the Iron Codex, and uh, that took up all my time, and now I'm getting ready for the release of The Midnight Front. And as a result, I have not really had a lot of time to uh, sit around and, and watch the show as I would like. Also, part of the problem is I would binge watch it, but I know my wife wants to watch it with me, so I'm always trying to find a time when we can both watch and that time never seems to come. And so the episodes just sit there unwatched. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know what that's like. Not with this show, but with there's other shows where I want to watch with my wife together and I'm not available or she's not available. And it just keeps building up and adding to the collection of what we have to binge watch together. So it gets to be a bit much. You know, yeah, you know how it goes. I do. I do. Now, is Desperate Hours, is that canon? Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I don't want to go there. It's just, that's a joke. It's not canon. Uh, <laughs> that was the sound of me slapping you. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> uh, well, that, that being said, as I recover, where can people find you online? 
They can find my website at davidmack.pro. That's davidmack, M-A-C-K dot P-R-O. You can find me on Twitter at David Allen Mack. Allen is A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K. So David Allen Mack at Twitter. Facebook, you can find me there at facebook.com slash the David Mack. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. And this was a really great book. I really enjoyed this one. It was a wild ride from start to finish. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm really glad to hear you enjoyed the book. And I will look forward to talking with you in 2018 about the Midnight Front. So Nausicans, Ferengi, Breen, all chasing after some wild technology. I have to say this was a really cool episode or really cool novel, I should say. And with the with the situation after the episode, The Survivors, I'm kind of surprised that nobody's followed up on that until now, because there's just so much there for a really cool story. There's so many novels that I read that play off of a episode from something. And just about every time I'm like, why hasn't anybody done something off this episode before? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's, it always, like you said, it seems so obvious. And, and, you know, when I was watching the, the survivors, you don't think about this race being destroyed and, oh, but the world's, their world's still there and their buildings and their technology and their warfare. Like you just think they're wiped out and that's the end of that. But no, there's. What does happen to all that? Mm. It just makes total sense. It's like, uh, duh, why not? So I, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was, it was a fun read. It was really quick. A lot of just, just a lot of action, a lot of things going on, a lot of character development. It was just, it was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So I don't know, but you know what? It's been fun talking about speed reading. That's what I'm going to call this. It was a speed reading thing because <laughs> it's a lot of speed in the book and it's a lot of reading. But it's been fun talking about that. But it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. Oh, huge. Uh, I mean, uh, Tintin... Definitely in Europe and in many, many other countries, um, in Africa and Asia, um, is really honestly as big as James Bond rolled together with Indiana Jones and Superman. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. First of all, it very much hinges on the existence of subspace. Um, which is also a kind of murky sci-fi term that is used in Star Trek to explain how warp drive works and um, and how you can communicate the orb. And and so it it makes the relationship between uh, Nog and Jake really important because it's I think it does really soften Cisco's heart towards the Ferengi. And I think it does the same thing for Rom. Rom, I think, begins to see the ways in which these Federation types actually are different than most Ferengi to kind of think of them. Warp 5. I, I like to talk about these things. They're not easy to talk about. You know, this is not an easy discussion to have because of so much stuff that's going on in our society right now. You know, and what's been going on for years. You know, again, that hashtag, the Me Too, like it really opened my eyes, you know, and which is what it was supposed to do, right? It's exactly what it was supposed to do. 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And, you know, if you have the time, leaving us a star rating and a written review is really helpful. It really helps us appear in the search results and helps Star Trek fans find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, even YouTube in most third-party apps. And you can even stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. Come on, everybody. Write a written review on iTunes. The last one time we got one was in July. I'm going to have to write one myself, I, mean, I, I think. Oh. We're a literary show, so I know you, you know you know about letters and writing. And all. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this, people. It'll just be fun because I like reading reviews. But there's another way that you can help us out, and that is to become a patron on the network through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. And there's all these perks like early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. And again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you have any thoughts about today's episode, we'd love to hear them. And there are many many ways for you to share those thoughts with us. The best place, of course, to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to Bruce and I. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And a caveat, if you do send us a comment, be warned, it will be read on the air. Ooh, that's scary. But you don't have to worry about if you do that in Goodreads because we have a Goodreads group and we're probably not going to read everything in Goodreads because it's this active group where we're talking about all the books that we are currently reading because we have a section about that, but also what we've read and the future books that are coming up on shows. So all that's there. Just go and search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group and we'll let you right in. And we'd like to thank our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Matala, Justin Ozer, and new to the show, welcoming Jeffrey Harlan. Thank you, Jeffrey, for your support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers right here on Literary Treks. So, Dan, when you're not a power-hungry husnock, husnock, whatever you are, where can people find you? <laughs> well, luckily, I somehow managed to escape Kevin Uxbridge's wrath. And you can find me now on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Kurtrats47 and on Facebook, usually on the Babel Conference, talking about Star Trek. And Bruce, when you're not in deep negotiations with CBS trying to secure rights for Brunt the Bounty Hunter... Where can we find you? 
I want money for that idea. Well, it wasn't my idea, but I helped contribute a little. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And uh, when we have new episodes of Discovery, you can find me on Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala. And that's the Monday evening after the episode premiere of Discovery. So check that out here on Trek FM. And guess what? We're I'm on a Star Wars podcast called The Star Wars Report. And do you know what we're talking about right now? Yes, that's right. The Last Jedi. It just came out. So we're going to be talking a lot about that movie. So check out The Star Wars Report for that. And that's on all kinds of podcast feeds and catchers and apps or whatever. And on StarWarsReport.com. The, the Last Jedi, is, is that a movie of some kind? or It's a movie. It's it's a Star Wars movie, Episode 8. You should check it out there. Huh. I, I haven't heard of it, but I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll check it out. It sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, there's probably a theater somewhere in your area that might be showing. Maybe. It. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Or maybe I've had tickets for the last two months. Who knows? One of the two. <laughs> you better use those tickets if you've had them. Oh, my goodness. Well, for all you Ray fans out there for <laughs> The Last Jedi that are listening to this podcast, I just want to say may the force be with you and thank you for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.